This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When it comes to the events in Roswell, New Mexico, in July of 1947, the truth is buried under a mountain of contradictory accounts and unreliable memories. Eyewitnesses can't agree on whether the debris they found in the desert was made of metal or wood. The few remaining photographs are accused of being staged. Even the official story was later revealed to be a cover-up. When even the basic facts are under contention, who do you believe? Are eyewitnesses reliable or are their human memories too faulty? Can we trust the U.S. military even after they admitted to covering up the truth in 1947? Even if the witnesses are recalling the facts correctly, how can they ever prove it without physical evidence? And if the wreckage in Roswell wasn't actually an Air Force surveillance balloon, what was it? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the ParCast Network podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. We're also not experts on extraterrestrials, which is why we've called in some extra help again this week. I'm Bill Thomas. And I'm Tim Johnson. Together, we host ParCast's newest show, Extraterrestrial. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about human encounters with beings from another world and discuss how much validity there is to these stories. 
Bill and Tim joined us last week to discuss Roswell theories that involve extraterrestrials. This week, they'll help us finish the story. Carter and I will continue to tell the parts of the story that are a little more down to earth. All four of us are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. And don't get us wrong, sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second and final episode discussing the aircraft crash in Roswell, New Mexico in July of 1947. For decades, the Air Force insisted the wreckage was a run-of-the-mill weather balloon. But this was eventually revealed to be a cover-up. The downed balloon was actually a top-secret surveillance craft being used to spy on the Soviets. But how do we know this story is the truth? How can we trust the Air Force after they lied to the public for decades? There are hundreds of conspiracy theories surrounding the crash in Roswell. This week, we'll look at three of the most popular. Conspiracy theory number one, the wreckage found in Roswell was extraterrestrial. Conspiracy theory number two, not only was the crash extraterrestrial, there were actual alien bodies recovered from the crash site and examined by Air Force doctors. And conspiracy theory number three, there was a second, much more revealing crash that happened near Roswell around the same time. The minor wreckage found on Mac Brazel's farm was used as a distraction, while the military covered up the more significant crash. The scope of the conspiracies surrounding Roswell is a little surprising, since the official story is pretty straightforward. A rancher found some odd debris. The military picked up the wreckage, initially called it a flying saucer, and then, after further examination, declared it was actually a weather balloon. Decades later, it came to light that the weather balloon was actually from a secret Air Force program called Project Mogul, and the truth had been covered up to protect the classified project. But the devil is in the details. Out of the fairly small pool of primary witnesses who saw the wreckage, only a few were still alive in 1978 when ufologists first turned their attention to Roswell. But those surviving witnesses have all given different and contradictory versions of what happened, some more sensational than others. It's hard to know who to believe. Which brings us to our first theory. Major Jesse Marcel, one of the first witnesses to handle the wreckage, believed that the Roswell wreckage wasn't a weather balloon, but was, in fact, a craft from out of this world. Marcel was an intelligence officer for the Air Force's 509th Bomb Wing Group, the only flight group in the world who knew how to drop an atomic bomb, a pretty prestigious position. As we covered last week, he was called to Mac Brazel's ranch outside Roswell to scope out some strange wreckage. Marcel's commanding officer, Colonel Blanchard, ordered him to take a counterintelligence officer with him. There would have been concerns that the wreckage was Soviet. So Marcel and counterintelligence officer Sheridan Cavett took a trip to Mac Brazel's ranch. When they saw the wreckage, 
Cavett didn't find it very interesting, but according to Marcel, what they saw was completely unnatural. By Marcel's own vivid description, quote, I'd never seen anything like it. I didn't know what we were picking up. I still don't know. As of this day, I still don't know what it was. Remember, Marcel was a military man with years of experience in the Air Force, and he couldn't even begin to identify what he was looking at. Which does sort of gel with the facts. The wreckage was part of the top-secret Project Mogul, which Marcel and other soldiers at the Roswell base wouldn't have been privy to. Of course, Marcel had died by the time the government admitted to Project Mogul's existence, making it pretty hard for him to refute their story once it came out. For what it's worth, the Mogul balloon would have essentially looked like a regular weather balloon anyway. So if what Marcel saw didn't look like a weather or surveillance balloon, what was it? The rancher, Mac Brazel, remembers the material as mostly wood and foil. The photos we've seen of the wreckage all look about like that. And Marcel himself even agreed some of the material looks like wood. But looks can be deceiving. According to Marcel, before they took the wreckage back to the base, his curiosity got the better of him, and he started playing scientist with the mysterious wood-like material. He took out a cigarette lighter and tried to set the wreckage on fire, but it wouldn't burn. He hit the foil with a sledgehammer, and it immediately reformed back to its original shape. It was completely indestructible. Well, hang on. An intelligence officer, someone whose entire job was ensuring information was properly handled, decided to set a mysterious, possibly Soviet craft on fire and hit it with a sledgehammer. Mm, he was trained in intelligence, not forensic procedure? Sure. According to Cavett, who was there the entire time, he never saw Marcel conduct these experiments. From there, Marcel's story converges back with the established version. He and Cavett collected the wreckage and took it back to the base, riding in different vehicles. Although, according to Marcel, this wasn't all they did. Marcel was apparently so taken with this wreckage that he decided he had to show someone. It was late at night by the time they'd left the ranch, but Marcel swung by his house, woke his wife and son, and spread out the wreckage on their kitchen floor. Now, the only proof we have of this is the word of Marcel's wife, Viad, and his 11-year-old son, Jesse Jr. However, they've sworn up and down they saw the wreckage. Jesse Jr. said the debris was, quote, a thick foil-like metallic gray substance, a brittle brownish-black plastic-like material like Bakelite, and fragments of what appeared to be I-beams embossed with pink or purplish-pink characters. What's interesting is that Major Marcel disagreed with his son about that. Both Marcells have sketched out their memories of what the wreckage looked like, and their depictions don't match up at all. Either way, Marcel eventually gathered up the wreckage and took it back to base. He showed it to Colonel Blanchard, the press release came out, and then the next morning he flew with the wreckage to Wright-Patterson, as per the official story. Irving Newton, the officer who confirmed that the wreckage was a weather balloon, recalled, quote, While I was examining the debris, Major Marcel was picking up pieces of the target sticks and trying to convince me that some of the notations were alien writings. He did not convince me. The photographs of the wreckage taken at the base don't really match with Marcel's descriptions. He addresses this by saying that they took one picture of him holding some of the less interesting debris. 
After that, his superiors cleared out the real wreckage and replaced it with other debris that looked more like a weather balloon. They photographed that wreckage more extensively. That raises a lot of questions. Why allow a photo of the real wreckage at all? Why did they have their own wreckage handy on such short notice? There would have been a photographer there. Did they remember any sort of odd behavior? As a matter of fact, the photographer, J. Bond Johnson, does remember some odd behavior. He founded a group called the Roswell Photo Interpretation Team, which exists solely to get to the truth of the photos he took in 1947. He claims that the wreckage he photographed wasn't from a weather balloon or from any sort of monitoring balloon from Project Mogul. Johnson claims he asked Ramey what the wreckage was, and he said, quote, How the hell should I know? On the implication being that if the wreckage was a weather balloon, Ramey should have been able to identify it. Which is all well and good, but that itself creates more problems. Johnson wasn't even contacted by ufologists until 1989. When he was originally interviewed, he said Ramey briefed him on the wreckage being a weather balloon. It wasn't until years later that he began to change his tune. Either way, after Ramey issued his official statement that the wreckage was a weather balloon, he told Marcel, quote, you leave the wreckage right here, we'll take care of it from here. Was that Ramey telling Marcel that they'll handle the press and the explanation? Or is there something more sinister behind his words? It's tough to tell. These are the basics of Jesse Marcel's claims, though. The wreckage he found was more than a weather or a military balloon, and it had some odd, possibly extraterrestrial properties. When he brought it to the higher-ups, they told him to look the other way. Every Roswell conspiracy theory stems from these claims. Marcel was the first person to imply publicly that the Roswell wreckage was anything but a weather balloon when he was approached by ufologists in 1978. There are a few questions raised here. First of all, it took over 30 years for Marcel's story to come out. Second, when he was first interviewed by ufologists Friedman and Stringfield, he couldn't even remember the year of the event, nor did he have any sort of documentation to back up his claims. According to Stringfield, Marcel never even mentioned aliens until the researchers suggested the idea to him. If that's the case, then why did Marcel keep showing up as a witness? If Friedman knew he had planted the idea of alien involvement in his head, why bother to keep interviewing? Maybe Friedman figured something was better than nothing. Either way, the real breakout moment was when reporter Bob Pratt interviewed Marcel for the National Enquirer later in 1978. It was eyewitness testimony from a supposedly credible witness. Unfortunately, the Pratt interview was also the seed of Marcel's downfall. While he continued to be a voice in the ufologist community until his death in 1986, his testimony prompted some researchers to dig deeper into his statements. Not his statements about the wreckage, though. His statements about himself. Well, Marcel claimed to have been a pilot since 1928. He said he was awarded five medals for his service as a pilot in World War II and had a degree in physics from George Washington University. After Roswell, he wrote a report about the Soviets' first nuclear detonation, which President Truman himself read on air. Hugely impressive stuff. Regrettably, most of it isn't true. Marcel claimed to have been a pilot since 1928, 
but his application to the Air Force in 1942 mentions absolutely no prior flying experience. His records show that he was awarded two service medals, not five. Not only did he not get a degree from George Washington University, but there are no records of him ever attending the college. He may very well have written the report recording the first Soviet nuclear detonation, but Truman didn't read it on air because there was no radio broadcast of the news at all. There's one other factor we should mention here. A line in Marcel's performance review during his time at Roswell between July 1947 and April 1948. His only known weakness was an inclination to magnify problems he is confronted with. This brings us to the crux of the problem regarding Jesse Marcel's testimony. He's an embellisher and an exaggerator. Maybe he misremembered his story by the time Friedman and company found him in 1978, or maybe he's always had a talent for exaggeration. The question is, does it matter? For what it's worth, Marcel stood by his story until his death, as did his son. The evidence is pretty limited, so we have to decide which witnesses to trust. How plausible is it that the wreckage he found was extraterrestrial? This is a tough one, but I'm gonna rate it a three out of 10. I don't think he was out to hoax anyone, but I'm willing to believe that there are some aspects of the wreckage he didn't recognize, and he jumped to a few conclusions. He stuck to his story for years, but he never provided any evidence to support his claim that the wreckage came from an alien spaceship. I agree with you. Marcel doesn't seem to have an agenda, but he also doesn't have any proof. But what about other witnesses? Up next, we'll look at another eyewitness who has his own version of what happened at Roswell. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X dot com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. While Jesse Marcel's testimony was the spark that brought the Roswell incident into the public eye, the incident didn't truly catch fire until two men got involved in 1989. One of them was Robert Stack, the host of Unsolved Mysteries. The Unsolved Mysteries episode on Roswell proposed a second conspiracy theory. 
there were actual alien bodies found in the wreckage that were covered up by the government. It's worth noting here that Unsolved Mysteries wasn't exactly a paragon of documentary filmmaking, although some of its episodes did lead to the mysteries being, well, solved. At the end of the episode on Roswell, viewers were encouraged to call in with any information they might have. One call stood out from the rest, from a man named Glenn Dennis. Dennis claimed that a friend of his who worked on the base as a nurse told him there were bodies in the wreckage that didn't look human. Dennis said he saw the wreckage with his own eyes and he was threatened into silence by military officials. After the incident, the nurse was suddenly transferred overseas and a few weeks later, Dennis was told she was dead. Dennis's story is probably the closest in tone to what we think of when we think of Roswell conspiracies. Alien bodies, shadowy military threats, and mysterious disappearances. Let's look at his story in detail. On July 8, 1947, a few hours after the original press release announced that the Air Force had found a flying disc in Roswell, a young Glenn Dennis got a call from the Roswell Air Base. Dennis was working as a hearse and ambulance driver for the local funeral home, which had a contract with the base to provide ambulance services. The officer peppered him with questions. How would you preserve bodies that were left outside for a few days before they were collected? Do you have hermetically sealed caskets? How small are they? What's the smallest you have? Dennis answered as best he could and offered to come down to the base to help out, but the officer deflected. He said he was just preparing in case it came up in the future. Obviously, Dennis found this pretty weird. As luck would have it, not long after that, a soldier was injured in a motorcycle accident, and Dennis's work as an ambulance driver brought him onto the base. While he was there, Dennis noticed some suspicious stuff in the back of a couple of military ambulances. He recalled, quote, There were several pieces which looked like the bottom of a canoe, about three feet in length. It resembled stainless steel with a purple hue. There was some strange-looking writing on the material resembling Egyptian hieroglyphics. That sounds pretty similar to Jesse Marcel's description, doesn't it? It does. Marcel's account of the wreckage was described in detail in the Unsolved Mysteries episode Dennis had watched immediately before calling Unsolved Mysteries and telling his own story. That may be where he got the idea. But other than the hieroglyphics and purple hue, this description is very different from any of the other documented descriptions of the wreckage, which could potentially mean the wreckage was from a different crash or that Marcel only found part of the wreckage on Brazel's ranch and the army hauled more in afterward. Maybe. Either way, Dennis dropped off the soldier and then decided to find his friend on the base, a nurse. As he was wandering around, she ran out of an examination room holding a cloth over her mouth. She told him, quote, get out of here or you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Before Dennis could ask what was going on, she rushed away. An army captain noticed Dennis and immediately had him escorted out of the base. Before they could take him back to the funeral home, Dennis and his escorts were stopped by another officer, a redheaded man with, quote, the meanest looking eyes Dennis had ever seen. He said, you did not see anything. There was no crash here, and if you say anything, you could get in a lot of trouble. Of 
that wasn't clear enough. The next day, Sheriff Wilcox got in touch with Dennis's father and Dennis himself. He told them the military wanted Dennis's name, his address, and the names of his family. Apparently, Dennis didn't take that too seriously because he spent the rest of the morning trying to reach the nurse from the base. Finally, she got a hold of him and they met at the officers club on the base, apparently with no resistance from the military. The nurse told Dennis everything she saw. She helped two doctors, who she'd never seen before, perform autopsies on three strange and mangled bodies. The bodies had been left out in the elements and chewed on by wild animals. They smelled awful. To back up her description, she pulled out a prescription pad and drew pictures of the bodies. Dennis recalled, quote, The eyes were deeply set. The skulls were flexible. The nose was concave. The doctor said there was heavy cartilage instead of teeth. She gave these pictures to Dennis and left to continue her shift. He never saw her again. The next time Dennis tried to contact her, he was told she had been transferred. Sure enough, he received a postcard a couple weeks later telling Dennis that she was now overseas. When he replied, the letter was returned, marked, quote, return to sender, deceased. After following up, he was told that she died in a mysterious plane crash. That's the end of Dennis's version of events. For years, Dennis was considered one of the key witnesses in ufologist research, but there was one question he couldn't answer. What was the nurse's name? When asked about the identity of the nurse in 1989, Dennis gave the name Naomi Self with one F. After six years of searching, they found a yearbook of Roswell Base employees. Naomi Self wasn't listed in the book as a nurse or otherwise. On top of that, one of the nurses who did work there in 1947 had no recollection of a Naomi Self, despite remembering all the nurses listed in the yearbook. At some point during the search, Dennis told one researcher, Carl Flock, that the name should be Self with two Fs. He also gave out her middle name, Maria. According to Flock, Dennis didn't trust the other researchers, which is why he'd never corrected himself until now. That rationale raises a lot of questions on its own. First off, Self 1F and Self double F are essentially the same name. It's a moot point anyway, as there was no luck finding a Naomi Maria Self, single or double F. Nobody of that name ever worked in Roswell, or even in the entire military at the time. When Dennis was presented with the results, or lack thereof, he was unsurprised. His explanation? Naomi Self wasn't her real name. He decided to lie to every single researcher and protect her true name for himself. Sure, that's logical. When pressed, he only gave one researcher the first letter of her real last name. He said, if I ever got proof she was dead, I probably would make her name known or confirm it. At this point, it's hard to tell if there ever was a nurse at all. There was a Catholic nurse who worked at the base at the time, a Lieutenant Eileen M. Fanton. While this isn't anywhere close to a name that Dennis gave, she resembles the physical descriptions that Dennis provided. She served overseas and left the base shortly after the Roswell incident due to a medical condition. Since her departure was related to a medical issue, even if the Roswell airfield was contacted about her whereabouts, they wouldn't be able to give out any information due to medical confidentiality. 
The last record we have of Eileen Fanton is from 1955, apparently not dead from a plane crash. Another issue is, despite the best efforts of ufologists, there are absolutely no documents of whatever plane crash the nurse would have died in and no report of any Air Force nurses dying in a plane crash during that period. The Air Force employee who told Dennis the news could have been mistaken about what happened, or the entire crash could have been a cover story. After Dennis found out there was no record of a plane crash, he floated an alternative theory that the military had actually organized for the nurse to join a convent and become a nun. It would make sense that the military would spirit her away somewhere. She'd be the ultimate smoking gun, a military employee who had seen alien bodies. This story seems awfully convenient. What's equally convenient is that Dennis claims he first saw the wreckage at the airbase on the night of July 8th, but he also claims he saw the front page headline about the Roswell flying disc, which was published on July 8th, after he went to see the nurse for the second time. That would put his trip to the airbase on July 7th, the same day Mac Brazel alerted the Army to the wreckage in the first place. The timeline doesn't add up. While there are certainly timeline discrepancies, we do know Dennis at least has the drawings supposedly given to him by the nurse. He showed them to several researchers in person. Not quite. According to Dennis, when he left the funeral home in 1962, he left the original drawings behind. Any drawings we've seen were drawn from memory by Dennis himself. Though, according to Dennis's neighbor, an artist named Walter Henn, that isn't true either. Henn said that Dennis approached him and asked him to draft the sketches, saying, we could make a lot of money out of this. Okay, I think I'm beginning to see a pattern here. Dennis doesn't seem like a very credible witness. But there's one thing we need to talk about before we render our verdict. There was a horrible plane crash at the Roswell Air Base in 1956. A plane's fuel tank exploded and burned the bodies of the crew. The corpses, according to the autopsies, had suffered severe burns and completely lost their legs, making them about four feet tall. The skulls were fractured to the point where they were almost malleable, and their faces were almost completely missing. There was also a serious odor coming from the bodies, almost overpowering. I am assuming these autopsies were conducted at the same funeral home that Dennis worked in. They were indeed. While the bodies were human, they were so deformed by the burns that they perfectly matched the descriptions of the so-called alien bodies that the nurse gave to Dennis. According to ufologist Carl Flock, when he shows copies of the drawings Dennis made to experienced air investigators, they usually ask what air crash they were from. So it's likely that Dennis would have seen the human bodies from this crash and they lodged themselves in his memory. Consciously or not, when he commissioned the drawings of the alien bodies, that memory resurfaced. I think I'm ready to rate the plausibility of this theory. Zero. Dennis's story changed multiple times and in multiple ways. The fake drawings were clearly pulled from his experiences as a funeral home worker. His timeline of events also doesn't track with any other accounts. I'll second that. While something extraterrestrial may have crashed at Roswell, this account of alien bodies doesn't hold water. All the theories we've been examining have, in one way or another, been directly related to the official version of the story. And conspiracy theorists don't usually trust official stories. 
But our final theory is a completely unofficial version of events, where the real crash happened miles away from Mac Brazel's ranch. Up next, we'll get into that theory and the masterminds behind it. Now, back to the story. We've noticed a certain evolution in conspiracy theories about Roswell. While the original theories from Jesse Marcel hold pretty closely to the official story, the further we go forward, the more elaborate and sensational they become. Unsolved Mysteries and Glenn Dennis both talk about actual alien bodies. Dennis's tale of the disappearing nurse has a dime store thriller quality to it, but in the 1990s, a new theory ratcheted the intensity up even higher, that there was an entirely different crash site with a relatively intact alien craft and multiple alien bodies. The smaller crash on Mac Brazel's ranch was used as a distraction to keep prying eyes away from the real crash. The book, The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell by Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt opens with a scene straight out of a sci-fi blockbuster. Military radar picked up a strange object in the sky on July 1st, 1947, a week before the wreckage was retrieved from Mac Brazel's ranch. The object on radar disappeared and reappeared over the next four days. On July 4th, the radar scopes were flooded with a blinding light. It looked as if the object had exploded and then dropped off the radar. While the military was glued to their scopes, an eyewitness saw the crash with his own eyes. A good 30 miles from Mac Brazel's ranch, Jim Ragsdale, a surveyor for El Paso Natural Gas, was spending a quiet night outside with his lover, the fantastically named Trudy Truelove. Well, they were lying in the back of Ragsdale's pickup, buck naked to quote him, when they saw the crash. Ragsdale and Truelove headed over to where the object fell. According to Ragsdale, what they found was similar to the official description of the debris at Brazel's ranch. Truelove was scared by the wreckage. Ragsdale tried to take some for himself, but Trulove stopped him. Before they could do much more, the military quickly cleared and secured the area. The wreckage was shaped almost like a wing, 30 feet long, embedded into a dry creek bed. This sounds like a metal fuselage, close to what we think of when we picture an aircraft crash. It was mostly intact too, not spread out over a wide area like the Brazel Ranch wreckage. The five bodies in and around the crash were the real focus of attention. They were five feet tall with silver flight suits and very pale skin, resembling, and I quote Schmidt and Randall's book here, data from Star Trek, The Next Generation. Obviously, they only came to that comparison in the 1990s, as we don't have any testimony from this crash prior to that. At any rate, during the recovery, military men were rotated in and out of the site, making sure that nobody spent too much time there at once. They didn't want anyone to get a clear picture of the thing. The bodies were wrapped in lead-lined body bags and stored in a hangar on the Air Force base, with a circle of guards ordered to shoot anyone who wasn't supposed to be there. Around this time, the bodies were moved for medical examination. This was on July 5th, which, according to Schmidt and Randall, was when Mac Brazel would have actually arrived in Roswell to report the wreckage he uncovered 30 miles away and with a decidedly different appearance. According to this theory, the military was concerned about the public discovering the bodies they'd uncovered. That's when someone got the bright idea to use Mac Brazel's wreckage as a distraction. 
they could claim that they uncovered a flying disc on Brazel's ranch. Then, while everyone was paying attention to that, they could handle the actual wreckage from the other crash site. That more or less brings us back into line with the official story. The press release goes out. The wreckage from Mac Brazel's ranch is transported to Fort Worth, and hours later, General Ramey claims it's a weather balloon. The military does whatever it does with the bodies and the real wreckage, and the public is none the wiser. Cover-up completed. What we need to look at are the witnesses. Let's start with Jim Ragsdale, who claimed to have found the wreckage and bodies on the night of July 4th. Ragsdale didn't even come forward until 1993, 46 years after the incident. While his original story appeared in Schmidt and Randall's book, he added some pretty incredible details after the fact. He actually did keep some of the wreckage and showed it off at a local tavern a few years later. Shortly after that, his car, trailer, and house were broken into and the wreckage was stolen. Convenient. There's also the question of Trudy Trulove, the other primary witness. According to Ragsdale, she was killed in a car crash not long after they showed the wreckage off at the tavern. Some of the wreckage she'd kept in her car mysteriously disappeared when the car was recovered. I thought that Trulove was scared by the wreckage. Why would she keep any of it? Good question. Maybe she came around. The holes keep piling up. Ragsdale lived in Carlsbad, New Mexico at the time, a good 80 miles away from where he supposedly saw the crash. He claims he was in the area working as a surveyor for a pipeline, but when the El Paso Natural Gas Company was contacted for confirmation, they said there were not even any plans for that pipeline until 1952. Between 1993 and 1995, Ragsdale changed the location of his tryst with Trudy Trulove over and over, often with 70 miles of difference. Even I'll admit there's just too much mess here for it to be treated credibly. Most researchers have since written off Ragsdale as a source. There doesn't seem to have been much of an effort to verify that Trudy Trulove was even real either. So we'll cross that off the list, but there were also sources on the Air Force side, which is where we get most of the more extreme details in Schmidt and Randall's books. There are numerous Air Force officials cited. Some are anonymous, going by names like Mr. X. A few other names come up, like Joseph Osborne and Steve McKenzie. Some just get credited by their job title, like an intelligence operative. The problem is, that every single pseudonym traces back to one man, Frank Kaufman. In 1947, Kaufman was a clerk for the personnel office at the Roswell Airfield as a civilian. Yet, he was supposedly present for all of these incredibly secret events. But Kaufman wasn't really a personnel clerk, according to him. He was part of a special team, sort of a proto-SEAL Team 6, or maybe more of an early men in black. He refers to them as the Nine, and they are the stuff every conspiracy theorist dreams of. A deep cover black ops group that doesn't even answer to the president. Kaufman claims he was first called up by a general to monitor the blips on the radar, even though he was not a trained radar technician. When the object crashed and the military headed out to retrieve it, Kaufman went with them. 
He was there when they recovered and transported the alien bodies, and he saw the guards surrounding them in the hangar. Later, he claims he saw Blanchard write the press release confirming that the wreckage from Brazel's ranch was a flying saucer. Blanchard personally writing the press release directly contradicts almost every other testimony. In fact, almost all of Kaufman's testimony is contradictory to the rest of the witnesses. But he's supposedly a secret agent, which certainly helps his credibility. For someone in such a sensitive and classified position, Kaufman does talk very freely about his work with the Nine. He even has photos of the Nine together, which he frequently shows to researchers. He also has a series of high-level documents, like a top-secret report he wrote up on the Roswell incident. However, he only shows researchers a photocopy of the report that he made at the time he wrote it in 1947. After Kaufman's death in 2001, researchers finally got a good look at the photocopied documents he'd been showing them, along with the original documents he used to make them. They were all forgeries. Like Ragsdale, even the hardcore researchers have written off Kaufman as a storyteller. His story is wildly divergent from any evidence, and what proof he did have was exposed as a forgery after his death. The plausibility of the second crash site, as reported by Jim Ragsdale and Frank Kaufman, is a big fat zero. There are literally hundreds of other witnesses with their own version of the Roswell events, but we've covered some of the biggest ones. Uh, to me, though, the official version is still the story that holds the most water. Jesse Marcel is the only eyewitness ufologists have found who was actually, definitively, at the scene of the Roswell crash. He stuck to his story for years, but his credibility is an issue and he completely lacks evidence for his more outlandish claims of alien involvement. This is also a rare conspiracy theory case where the government has actually admitted to a cover-up. The evidence has been poured over again and again, and the book should have been completely shut, but researchers keep finding ways to open it. Maybe there is a smoking gun that we've yet to find. Maybe there was more to the wreckage on Mac Brazel's farm. Or maybe the official explanation, as straightforward as it is, is the truth. For better or worse, the Roswell incident is going to stay with us until people stop paying attention. Even though every theory is riddled with holes, it seems like people still want to believe. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. And thanks to Bill and Tim for joining us this and last week. You can hear more from them on their new show, Extraterrestrial, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for inviting us. Happy to help anytime. Yeah, this was great. And if you enjoyed these episodes, you can find episodes of Extraterrestrial as well as Conspiracy Theories and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. We release new episodes every Tuesday. And Conspiracy Theories will be back next Wednesday. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. 
Conspiracy theories and extraterrestrial were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media, and are part of the ParCast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Alex Switsky and stars Molly Brandenburg, Carter Roy, Bill Thomas, and Tim Johnson. <laughs>